0: Coming to you from Beaumont, this is your house call.
1: When I was working on the job with my stepdad, I was electrocuted. I was moving the ladder and I went to pull it back and I felt like it was like a tase, but just so much more electricity and that's when everything just shut off. All of a sudden, it sounded like a transformer blew in my backyard. So I ran outside, and he was on the ground. He was foaming at the mouth, so we turned him over, and then we started CPR.
0: You just heard audio of Caitlin talking about how she reacted quickly to finding Michael down, not breathing and without a pulse. Michael was extremely fortunate to survive. He was taken to a Beaumont ER, and it's no doubt that he would not have survived if not for having Caitlin there to provide high-quality CPR at the scene of the accident. Simply put, Caitlin is a hero. So what does it take to save a life and be a hero to a person like Michael? That's what we're here today to find out. Hello and welcome to the Beaumont House Call podcast. I'm Dr. Nick Gilpin, and my goal is to help you and your family live a smarter, healthier life. Today's podcast is called How to Be a Hero. Our guest today in the studio is Dr. Jamie Hope, Jamie is an emergency physician at Beaumont Royal Oak. She attended medical school at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine and completed her emergency residency at Beaumont. Dr. Hope is also a reputable teacher, speaker, and author. She speaks and writes on a number of valuable topics, such as cultivating and sustaining healthy habits. In the conversation today, we'll hit on several topics. We'll talk about a number of practical life-saving situations that a hero can have in their toolkit, We're also gonna talk about how timely recognition of a potential impending disaster, such as how to recognize the early warning signs of a heart attack or stroke, could save a life. Finally, we'll get into some effective ways that you and your family can learn the things that we talk about here, whether through community events or online resources. And with that, I welcome Dr. Jamie Hope to
1: the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, this is great. So, Jamie, you are an ER physician. Yes. I think that qualifies you as a legitimate hero.
1: Oh, well, thank you.
0: Did you do anything heroic at work this week?
1: Well, of course. That's a you know typical day for us. We get to do some amazing stuff. It's a privilege to get to serve and take care of patients.
0: Nice. Let's walk through a few situations. I think that this is going to really be the the bulk of the podcast today, Um that someone listening right now could encounter. So I'll go through a situation and you can walk me through how a hero would respond in that situation. So let's start with a with a, a, a good one. Let's start with you're you're at a restaurant and a person sitting near you starts choking. What do you do?
1: Yes, this is a fairly common scenario. So the first thing that you're going to want to do in this instance is ask the person if they're okay. If they're able to speak at least some type of words, you know that their airway isn't completely obscured, Mm -hmm. and you ask them if they would like help, if they feel that they need help. If they are unable to even speak at all, and kind of do that universal sign where they put their hands at their neck and throat, that that choking sign we all know, that's a sign that it's impacted their airway, and the longer it's in there, the longer their oxygen is going to be cut off. Mm -hmm. So it's really important in that instance to do something like the Heimlich maneuver. Okay, talk me through that. So you wanna be standing behind the person and you wanna put one fist of your, you know, one hand into your fist, so you've got your two hands kind of clenched together, one in a fist and one hand wrapped around that fist. In that area right where your ribs meet your sternum at the top of your stomach in the middle, you're gonna to wanna to put your fists in from behind them and very quickly and forcefully push inward and upward. The idea is you're shoving that food bolus out. not So you're not pushing on their chest bone. You want to make sure you're pushing on the stomach. And with that upward thrusting to help them expel that, in some cases, right onto the table. Sure. It's, it's part of the thing. It's a messy thing.
0: That's success. Yeah.
1: Yes, that's success. And then give them an opportunity, sit down, catch their breath, and ask them again how they were doing. Sometimes there can actually be more than one piece in there.
0: Okay. How many... Um How many quick thrusts should I give when I'm doing the Heimlich maneuver? As many as it takes?
1: As many as it takes to get it out. Okay. If they collapse, then you're going to want to lay them onto the ground, and you can continue that type of thrusting motion from the front. You don't want to try and hold them up if they go unconscious. Okay. And if you do a few thrusts and you're not able to get success and they're still choking, that's when you want to look directly at someone else and indicate, I need you to call 911.
0: Okay. Okay. And obviously, we'll we'll get to, to, you know, emergency response in those types of situations. But is there a difference for how I should approach someone if it's, say, a a child or a toddler as opposed to an adult in this situation?
1: Yeah, there's a little bit difference in terms of the mechanism. A, A larger child, you would do just one hand, not necessarily the other hand wrapping around a fist. Keep in mind, we're trying to expel the food bolus, but we're not trying to harm them. And then with babies, there's a combination where you lay them across your arm and do the pressure there. And for that, that's something, particularly people who are around babies or working in childcare, that's a really important skill. I would encourage people to watch videos and take classes to make sure they're very comfortable. Mm -hmm.
0: Have you ever done the Heimlich?
1: I have. Yeah. Never at work, because they don't usually get to us that quickly. But yes, in, in public, I have. And then once on my very own son. Wow. Which I'd have to say was probably one of the most stressful things.
0: Holy smokes, I bet.
1: Yes. He was a he was a toddler. I was sitting right next to him when he choked. But the the problem was my right hand was in a cast. Oh wow. Having recently broken it and he was tied in a five point harness in the high chair for safety. You know, so things move quickly, but you just have to, you know, take a deep breath. Do what you gotta do. Focus on what's most important and get it done
0: let's talk about what happens and we were kind of segueing in this direction but when a when a person suddenly collapses and stops breathing so that could be your choking victim who mm-hmm. your you know your heimlich maneuver was unsuccessful but let's just imagine a scenario where you're you're in a room with someone and they go down you maybe you don't know exactly what happened but now they're not breathing walk me through your approach
1: so with a witnessed arrest you can call for help immediately particularly if there's someone else here's an important point i think people in the chaos, can sometimes forget. When there's so many people standing there, often nobody acts mm-hmm. because they're just waiting for somebody else to act. So the first part of being a hero is to step forward. Right. Do it. And then assign someone a role. If there's a crowd of people standing there and you say, Call 911, everyone's gonna look around at each other and say, Well, are you gonna call? Are you gonna call? Point at someone. L- literally point at someone and say, You call 911. You go find an AED, Mm -hmm. you know, assign roles and tasks. People feel very comfortable when they know what to do in that situation.
0: Very good point. Excellent point. What next?
1: So you want to immediately check the patient, kind of, you know, give them a little shake. Hey, are you okay? Are they responding at all? If not, you want to immediately check for breathing and pulse. That's going to be your most important step. Because sometimes somebody is unconscious for other reasons. Maybe they've had a seizure. Maybe they have fainted. Mm -hmm. So starting chest compressions in those situations would not be appropriate. Right. So you want to check for the breathing (laughs) impulse first before you – we have had a few instances of some broken ribs where people got a little carried away. But still, I would rather them err on the side of trying to help someone, trying to save someone.
0: Are we still teaching ABCs?
1: Interestingly enough, we are, we have rearranged the alphabet. Okay. So the ABCs, for those of you who haven't taken a course in a while, it's airway, breathing, circulation. Mm -hmm. We were always taught to take the airway first and the breathing and then the circulation. What we have found through all of these studies with high quality CPR, now it's CAB. Sorry, Sesame Street, we had to move (laughs) your letters around. But so it's For circulation, then airway, then breathing. Okay. What that means is the priority is not giving the breaths. It's the chest compressions. Keep that heart beating. It is. Yep. We always say it's the chest compressions, it's chest compressions, it's the chest compressions. So that's the thing that you need. And the quicker you start that, the quicker you're helping the patient's blood recirculate and giving oxygen to their vital organs. Mm -hmm.
0: Now, I remember... um, God, it feels like a long time ago when I was doing my ACLS and my my life-saving training. There were these ratios of how many chest compressions you would give and how many breaths you would give. And in the heat of the moment, I imagine it can be a little bit challenging. Is it really important for me to be fixated on ratios or am I just giving high-quality chest compressions?
1: No, fixating on the ratios is not important. It's, you know, it's 30 to 2, 30 compressions to 2 breaths, mm-hmm. unless you're talking about a child. But really that almost turns people away from being willing to help a stranger because you feel like you have to put your mouth on theirs. We can, do, You can do chest compressions without any giving them any rescue breaths at all, and you are still doing benefit. So if you choose not to do that, that's okay. Mm-hmm. You're still helping this person possibly survive this cardiac arrest. So less concern about the ratio and more concern about doing high-quality chest compressions as quickly as possible when someone loses a pulse.
0: The example that we talked about in the intro uh, that we shared with Caitlin and Michael. So Caitlin was able to give high-quality CPR at the scene, and Michael survived. I mean, it's a really amazing story. How good is bystander CPR in real life?
1: You know, it makes a difference. The more training somebody has, the more they help. There's a a quote that I love, we don't rise to the occasion, we fall to our highest level of preparation. Hmm. So doing something like taking a class, watching videos so you know how to do it, is going to help you so much so when that situation happens, you have that preparedness. So bystander CPR makes a substantial difference. In the United States, there's about 350,000 people per year who have an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. But their survival rate for that is only 10%. Mm -hmm. And of those 10%, the vast majority are people who got bystander CPR. The quicker, the better. It can double or even triple the survival odds just from having somebody put their hands on the chest and keep circulating until help can arrive. Good point. And let's talk about high quality CPR. You and I have mentioned that a few times. That's right. And so the key is the depth and the speed. Okay. So we get excited in those moments, right? It's a very stressful thing. Our our adrenaline is pumping, our blood is pumping, but we want to be pumping their heart at about a rate of 100. Going faster isn't necessarily better because it's not going to give the blood the heart adequate time to refill and circulate. So you remember that old song, "Staying Alive. alive. Yes, It's fast, but it's not that fast. We're not talking a techno house beat song (laughs) here. We've got just some old school disco. So truly, to help slow people down, by all means, literally sing it out loud if you need to, to help keep that beat. And you want to be pushing a depth of at least two centimeters. So you want to get a good compression. Mm -hmm. And for those of you who haven't done it, it is going to feel strange. You may pop the ribs out of place. You may break ribs. It's still better than losing a life. And those things are all fixable. So you're making sure you're pushing down and then also lifting up, getting your hand. You have to have adequate time for the heart to refill. So down, up, down, up, make sure that you're doing it and to the proper beat.
0: Good point. I'm glad you clarified that because you're right. I was talking about high quality CPR and yeah, maybe people don't always know what that means. Talk about the AED. We mentioned the AED. So you delegate to the scene. You say, you call 911. You grab an AED. What's an AED? What's that going to do?
1: So AED is Automatic External, Automated External Defibrillator. Mm-hmm. So that's the thing where you watch in TV shows where they put the paddles on someone and yell, clear, right. <laughs> really loud and shock them. <laughs> Now, they don't have the paddles, so nobody has to worry about positioning. If you open those kits, it, they make it as easy as humanly possible. It's
0: pictures. Yes. It's very simple. Yes. yes. I, yep.
1: There's two sticky pads, and on the pad, there's a picture of where you where stick you that one it. and where you stick the other one. In this case, you are going to need to expose the patient. This needs to be on their skin. Mm -hmm. At this point, modesty is certainly less important than saving a life. Mm -hmm. So it needs to be on their skin. You need to make sure if they're wearing any thick metal jewelry or anything like that, it needs to be away because when you do shock, you can create an arc. Mm -hmm. And you want to make sure that they're not wet. So kind of electric safety rules in general. Okay. So you put the pads on and turn the machine on. And the machine will tell you what to do. That's
0: right. It'll say, you know, analyze or you'll push a button. It'll analyze the rhythm if there is one.
1: And it'll say either shock advised or no shock advised. Mm-hmm. If shock is advised, you hit charge, you charge it up and you hit the shock button. And it's okay to do. It's, it can make a huge difference. If somebody is arresting because of an arrhythmia, that can actually bring them back. You can literally save their life and wake them up right there in front of you. Yep. And that's going to substantially improve their outcome.
0: And then after you deliver a shock, say, Mm -hmm. the machine will then do the next step, which is it will reanalyze the rhythm and it'll tell you no shock advised or it'll say repeat CPR or something to that effect. It's really foolproof.
1: It really is. And then you kind of have a friend of sorts. They're also helping you and telling you what to do. It will say no shock advised, continue CPR. So then you'll know that it's time to put your hands back on the chest and continue that high quality CPR.
0: When do I stop doing CPR?
1: In the field, and when the experts arrive. Yep. I wouldn't make that decision yourself. Or, if,
0: if, or if the AED, I guess, tells me that. Um, or you if, know, yes, the, I
1: suppose if the patient wakes up and right. says, "Please stop that now; it hurts." Right. <laughs> that would be that would be an appropriate time.
0: Yep.
1: Uh, to stop. The only other time I would advise you to stop is if you are in an unsafe situation. Good point. If it is compromising your safety and potentially your life to administer this, that would be an okay time to stop, take cover, whatever you need to do to be safe.
0: Incredibly important point that I want to really touch on is um, is the importance of keeping yourself and the person you're trying to say, save safe. And um, so look in your surroundings, know where you are, be aware of what the situation that you're in is and And it's more important for you to stay safe so that you can save the person that you're working on.
1: Exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, fire, floods, all kinds of dangerous situations, anything you need to remove yourself, and if possible, them from the situation. But safety, safety, safety.
0: And the experts will get there. They will presumably take the person to the hospital, like Michael, and and they'll take it from there. Absolutely. Let's move on to the next situation, which is where you may encounter someone who's cut themselves and they're bleeding profusely. And what do you do?
1: That is also a very common scenario. Sometimes it's people cutting, you know, a bagel or fruit in their hand, which I officially advise against, get a a cutting board. Um, And there's all variety of tools, saws, and many, many implements we can use to cut ourselves. So the first thing to do is put pressure on the wound. You can do it with your bare hand or with a cloth or anything nearby, but the whole Stop the Bleed campaign talks about applying direct and steady pressure as quickly as possible and hold it there until either the bleeding stops or you arrive at expert help.
0: Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit more about Stop the Bleed. I've heard of that before. That's a that's a program, it's a community program that essentially teaches people how to stop bleeding and, and, and supplies them with things like tourniquets. Am I right?
1: It is, and it's such an important thing because we can fix whatever kind of cut it is in the emergency department or in the operating room depending on what it is, but if the patient bleeds out before they can get to us, that we're not able to help them. Mm-hmm. You can bleed to death in less than four minutes. And even in an amazing suburban and urban area like this where you've got ambulance access close by, four minutes can still be a long time. So direct pressure, push hard. And then if that doesn't work, continue to do that but also tie a tourniquet around. So imagine you cut part of your hand off and it's, you know, there's blood coming out. Mm -hmm. So you would put the tourniquet higher up on the arm and make it tight until it cuts off the blood flow. Okay. We can fix whatever problems are potentially associated with that or treat the patient however necessary. But again, the first priority in this situation is always going to be stop the bleed.
0: What makes a good tourniquet?
1: It has to be something that is tight enough, something that fits, and something that you can have nearby when you need it.
0: Sure. My belt?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Like belt ties, you know, anything like that. A necktie would, would work in that whatever situation. Whatever you can get your hands on. Yeah, whatever you can fashion to to close that. Okay. Now, just another quick note on wounds. We've There's a lot of old wives' tales out there about peop- what people put in wounds, what people do to help, you know, butter on burns, peroxide in cuts. Let me tell you. Assuming you're not having to hold direct pressure on a profusely bleeding wound, if you have a a bleeding wound, you can run it under water and then apply pressure. You don't need to put rubbing alcohol or peroxide on it. In fact, those things kill the healthy cells you need in order to heal from the wound. Sure. So it's time to let that one go. You don't have to have any supplies with you other than whatever piece of cloth you have nearby and hold some pressure.
0: What a, now you got me thinking about movies that I've watched where, you know, they, they try to do something like like burn a wound or they try to cauterize a wound. Oh, I, I got to believe that's completely ill-advised. It is.
1: It is. Yes. Rocky, Rambo, and all of you other superheroes, that is officially ill-advised.
0: Total fiction.
1: Please do not attempt home cautery. Please don't use your lighter to sterilize a fork or a spoon or a knife and try and fix yourself. We have so many years of school. We, we want to help you. Good point. Yes.
0: All right. Next scenario. This one's a nightmare for me. It's never happened to me, and I hope it doesn't ever happen. But just in case, I'm in an elevator or I'm, I'm, I'm in a car with a pregnant woman, and suddenly she decides that that baby is coming, like, right now.
1: So never get into an elevator with a pregnant woman. <laughs> That that seems like such a movie scenario. You know, something's going to happen. The power's going to go out. Elevator stops. Uh, But it does happen. Kids are born every day. And it turns out some of those kids are going to just come out when they're good and ready. Yep. So the key in that situation is you want to make sure that you are getting her into a position of comfort, preferably as low as possible, in a safe chair or on the floor. This isn't the time to be climbing ladders, laying on table, anything like that. Mm -hmm. And you want to notify help right away. Now... Not every birth occurs in a hospital, of course, but we do like to have a qualified person in attendance to make sure that mom and baby are as safe as possible. Now, what you can do, besides hopefully not freak out, because this is not not your preferred area. I mean, you've never delivered a baby in your neuroclinic? That's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) No, luckily. Uh, So the key in this situation is working on keeping everybody calm. Mom needs to be calm, all the people around, because it turns out panic is not a useful tool. Sure. So you want to make sure everybody, you know, picture like kind of that the pregnancy breathing, slow, deep breaths. I wouldn't advise somebody to push because you don't know the situation, you don't know what's going on in there. But there will be some times when mom says, I feel I have to push. I mean, her, her body's in charge and do whatever you need to do to just keep her safe try and keep things until the professionals get there. But if the baby comes out, you're going to want to get them in a cloth, you know, some type you know, shirt, towel, coat, anything you can to help cushion and protect them. Mm-hmm. And uh, while you wait for help to arrive.
0: And I don't need to do anything with the cord and I don't need to do anything with a placenta. And I don't need to really do anything. I just
1: no, I think bystander placenta delivery might be a little too much for people. But no, the, the cord doesn't have to be cut immediately. In fact, there's some literature that says delayed cord clamping can be beneficial. Okay. And so, but the the worrisome scenario is if mom has severe bleeding after the birth. Sure. That is a true, true life-threatening emergency. Mm-hmm. And as with even with cuts, somebody can hemorrhage out in just a matter of minutes. Right. Best that you can do, because we administer medications, we have procedures, potentially surgeries that we can do um, in the field. All you can do is just push down, hold pressure, push down on the uterus, on the belly, so below the belly button, kind of between the belly button and the pubic bone, just push down, and just wait. You know, wait until help gets there.
0: Okay. I feel better now.
1: And then congratulate her on the delivery of the baby, of course. <laughs> maybe maybe she'll name it after you.
0: I still don't want it to happen, but yeah. I, I feel better prepared. Yes. All right. Um, sort of topical, but um, let's talk a little bit about a situation that might involve, say, an active shooter. So... Um, I guess I'm thinking less about how to deal with the shooter. Right. Um, don't be that kind of hero. Please,
1: yeah, that's a whole separate topic.
0: But let's say we've got a situation where maybe there's multiple injuries or there's, you know, penetrating traumas or whatever that might be. What can I do in that situation?
1: Yes, I wish that this was something we never had to talk about. Agree. But unfortunately, as it's increasing in complexity and becoming more common, this, there, there is a potential danger. So the first thing, again, start with scene safety. If the shooter has been neutralized with whatever means, you know, whatever that scenario is, if they're no longer shooting and no longer a threat, then it's okay to start helping people. Okay. To put yourself in the line of fire to help somebody is is not the best thing to do because then you will also be injured. There will be more people and less helpers. Mm-hmm. So take cover, whatever you need to do for safety. There's the ALICE training that, you know, don't be scared, be prepared teaching people how to you know, try and divert, hide, and only fight back as a last case scenario. But, right. but that's a separate talk. This is, okay, say the shooter is neutralized. They're no longer a threat. Now you've got gunshot victims all over. You want to make sure that somebody has notified the authorities. You assume they would have, but mm-hmm. you want to make sure. And then in this case, again, think stop the bleed. Stop the bleed, stop the bleed. So when somebody's bleeding, you hold pressure. Mm-hmm. You may not be able to help more than one person at a time. So you want to find some you know, find somebody who's bleeding and help them. While you're holding pressure on them, talk to them. Look at them in the eye. Say we're helping you. I'm gonna I'm here for you, we can do this together. You wanna to encourage them to be as calm as possible, which I imagine is not easy. Right. In this situation, you're right. also reassuring yourself, but yep, hold pressure, stop the bleed. Good. And then anyone who can potentially be evacuated out of there, there's all, depending on how many victims, there's a limited number of ambulances. So the sickest people that can potentially be saved need those ambulances. So people who have less severe but serious injuries can potentially arrive to the hospital in other ways. In any other scenario, I would never advise driving someone who is very seriously ill, unconscious, or has been shot to the hospital yourself but only in a mass casualty situation where the number of injured people outstrips the resources, that would be the only time that we would consider using private transportation to get somebody to the hospital just to get them the access to resources.
0: Good point. Let's talk a little bit for a moment about um, early warning signs. So for instance, um, what are some of the early warning signs of a heart attack? So the the person hasn't gone down, they haven't stopped breathing, but. Something clearly is going on. What are things that I should look for in that situation?
1: Yes. Generally, for a lot of scenarios, before they go down, there can be some warning signs. So anything when somebody is having chest pain is potentially worrisome, especially if they've not had an evaluation. Chest pain is something that we take seriously in the emergency department. As you can imagine, there's a lot of pretty important organs in the chest, Mm -hmm. ones you're not going to want to live without. So chest pain, but it doesn't always have to be pain, like a stabbing sharp sword through the chest. Sometimes you experience pressure, Mm -hmm. heaviness, tightness, palpitations where you feel your heart beating fast, a change in your breathing. You might feel sweaty or nauseated. And a lot of patients describe what we call a sense of impending doom. So the patient will tell you as they're kind of holding their chest, something is wrong. And the key is to listen to your body. If there's a blockage in there, the quicker we open it up, the quicker we're gonna restore blood flow to that part of your heart, which is, as you can imagine, an incredibly vital organ. So, with those early warning signs, time is of the essence. I would much rather somebody come into the emergency department for an evaluation for chest pain and get to say at the end of it, great news, everything looks fine, I'm so glad that you came in to get this checked out, versus, telling somebody they're going to have permanent damage or even death as a result of waiting too long.
0: Mm -hmm. So I'm going to call EMS or I'm going to transport myself or have someone transport me to the emergency room for an evaluation. Is there anything I can do in the meantime, if I think I'm having a heart attack or if I think my friend is having a heart attack?
1: Yes. Number one, please don't drive yourself. (laughs) Okay. I can't tell you how often that happens. Someone's like, oh, I was feeling really dizzy and having crushing chest pain. So I of my, my car. Yeah. No, now you're now you're having a heart attack and a car accident. Good call. That's a lot of extra things you don't really need. So number 1, definitely don't drive yourself. The reason it's beneficial to call EMS is because they, unlike your friend, EMS can admit men, administer medications, True. check an EKG in the field and can call ahead to the hospital saying, this person is having a heart attack, we will actually clear the way to get you to a cath lab or treatment as quick as possible. So the sooner we get notification, the better. So don't drive yourself. Mm -hmm. Call EMS. They can give you medications. They can administer treatments. They can check you. They are experts. They are wonderful. There are resources in the field, and then they can get you to us quickly and safely as possible.
0: Good advice. Let's talk about recognition of a stroke. So a little different, but, um, but probably similar rules apply. Talk about how we might see a stroke in someone.
1: Yeah, so again, timing is the key here. You want to get help the quicker the better. So in a stroke, we say time is brain. Mm-hmm. In the same way in a heart attack, we say time is heart muscle. So the further along the stroke goes, the more damage that part of the brain is going to get from the lack of blood flow and oxygen. So we ask people to recognize those signs as quickly as possible. So you're looking for a change. So imagine drooping in one part of your face, difficulty using half of your body, any of those things, a change in speech, slurred speech, or sudden onset, really severe vertigo or spinning sensation. So something that makes somebody altered. So again, you want to call for help as quickly as possible in this scenario. There are certain interventions that need to be done very timely, and the quicker the better. So as soon as you start recognizing those symptoms, you want to call for help right away.
0: What is that abbreviation for recognizing a stroke?
1: It is FASTER.
0: FASTER. Tell me about FASTER.
1: So what it stands for, so the F is for face. So imagine a facial droop. And, you know, a change in the way that somebody appears. So when you smile, both corners of your mouth normally turn up. But in a stroke patient, the face might look different as in one side of their face isn't able to turn up the same way as the other.
0: Okay.
1: A is for arms. So are they having weakness in one or their arms? Okay. The S is for stability. So either due to dizziness or weakness, they might have difficult time walking. Okay. T. T is for talking. So the speech changes and can potentially become slurred or confused depending on what part of the brain is having the stroke. E. And the E is for eyes. So a change in their vision or in the way that their eyes look.
0: And R. And
1: that leads us to R, which is react. So that means if you see any of these signs or symptoms. Call 911. Exactly. You want to react as quickly as possible. Now for heart attack, people always ask, what can I do in the field while I'm waiting? Absolutely. You can take aspirin if you've got it available, not ibuprofen, not acetaminophen. This is very specific to be aspirin, but in a stroke situation, we don't want you to do that because there are two kinds of stroke. One where there's blocked blood flow, which would be ischemia and the other kind, which is bleeding in the brain, which is hemorrhage. So, Aspirin, yes, for heart attack while you're waiting. Aspirin, no, for stroke. Let the experts decide that after we get a CAT scan of their head. Great point.
0: Jamie, you have the benefit of four years of medical school and another three years of residency training to equip you to be an emergency physician. And I'm sure you've performed countless acts of bravery and heroism in your job. But I'm listening right now and... I don't have time for all that training, so. (laughs) All in one day. (laughs) Right. But I still, obviously, I want to be well equipped because I want to keep myself safe and I want to keep my family safe in the event of a life-threatening emergency. I want to be a hero. What are some things I can do to educate myself more on the things that we've talked
1: about today? So as we talked about, you don't rise to the occasion, you fall to your highest level of preparation. This is an opportunity. Instead of to be scared, to be prepared. You can take classes in these things. In, in the community, and it's it's so important. You get you learn how to do CPR. You actually get to do the compressions on a mannequin. You mm-hmm. learn how to create a tourniquet. You actually get to practice all of these scenarios so if something does come up, if it's a loved one or even a stranger, that you feel confident enough to step in and be a hero.
0: And I would also add that we, through the Beaumont uh, website, we have a, a website, classes.beaumont.org, where you can go and you can find classes for doing CPR, learning how to use an AED, learning how to um, treat a choking victim, uh, et cetera. So those are some other resources you can use as well.
1: And do it with your friends and family. Make sure everybody knows how to take care of somebody. Make, make an event out of it and come take a class and learn how to save a life.
0: Great idea. That's about all the information we have time for today. I wanna thank our guest, Dr. Jamie Hope. Jamie, thank you for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I also wanna remind you to send along any questions or suggestions to podcast at beaumont.org. Dr. Shah Jahan and I are always scouting out the best questions, and we'll leave you today with this healthy thought. Timely recognition of a potentially life-threatening medical situation is a surefire way to earn your Hero Merit Badge. Remember these important tips in an emergency. Number one, try to stay calm and call for emergency help. Delegate the responsibility. Number two, keep yourself and the person you're trying to save safe from harm. And number three, remember the ABCs or the CABs of first aid and life support. Circulation, airway, breathing. You never know when you might need to save a life. Thank you. Continue your journey to living a smarter, healthier life. Visit beaumont.org slash podcast to access information and resources related to today's podcast.